Good morning. If you are a careful reader of the bulletin, you may be wondering, what looks different about Oscar Vasquez this morning? Something seems off. Well, I'm not Oscar Vasquez, uh, unfortunately, and uh, we will not be listening to the preaching of James 5, uh, as is recorded in your bulletin. Uh, Unfortunately, Oscar uh, recently came down with some kind of sickness, uh, flu-like symptoms that may be COVID, though we're not sure yet, and uh, so hopefully he's at home resting and you can pray for a smooth recovery for him. Uh, Oscar let me know that he wasn't feeling well, and so we reached out to our brothers at Grace, EV Free, who have helped us a numerous uh, amount of times, and they sent an email out with uh, Rob Lister titled, Bat Signal for Preaching, to their group of preachers, and it turns out many of them are on a retreat, uh, teaching at some um, retreat for their church, and so they're occupied either serving at their own local church or on this retreat. And so unfortunately for you, you have the third string preacher this morning. And I'm very sorry about that. Uh, but thankfully, the bulletin is, uh, is not without error. It does error. And thankfully, Scripture is not. So regardless of whether or not we're learning from James 5 or some other place in the Bible, the Lord can still use it to speak into our lives and encourage the church. And that's my prayer for you this morning, uh, that as we look at God's Word together, your faith would be encouraged, your love for God and love for others would increase. Uh, and let me just say, it is a privilege and a joy to be preaching for you uh, again this morning. Um, a little bit of thought goes into the bulletins. Um, we actually have a theme for each service that's not recorded in the bulletin. Tyler mentioned it at the beginning of the service, and the theme is our forgiving God. And I find that theme to actually be quite fitting with the passage that I intend to preach this morning. And that passage is the beloved Psalm 103. It's one of my favorites. So if you have a copy of God's Word nearby, go ahead and open it up to the middle of the Bible, Psalm 103. And if you're using the Bibles provided underneath the seats, you can find today's Scripture passage on page 502 of the Bibles provided. And let me just go ahead and say, if you are visiting and you don't have a personal copy of God's Word that you can read on your own, feel free to just take one of the black Bibles in the chairs that we provide. We would love for you to have that as our gift to you. Uh, You don't have to give us anything for it. We believe that God has spoken to us and revealed Himself to us in His Word, that it is without error in everything that He intends to communicate, and that it is authoritative. So we think that there is nothing more important than reading God's Word for yourself. Uh, in your own life. So we would be happy for you to have a copy of God's Word. Uh, Before we dive into our passage this morning, let's go to the Lord one more time in prayer and ask for His help. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that You would give us understanding from Your Word this morning. We pray that we would uncover uh, truths about You like rare jewels in the ground. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us by your word, uh, that you would bring things to a new and a fresh light as we uh, hear familiar phrases. Lord, we do pray for Oscar and for Erica. Lord, we pray that their sickness would be uh, mild and symptoms, that their recovery would be quick. And Lord, we pray that they would not be discouraged being apart from the gathering, 
uh, but that you would encourage them in their faith and in their longing uh, to be back with us soon. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So allow me to give you a little context about the book of Psalms. I'm aware that uh, Jeff Mooney preached recently on Psalm 2, but I'll still give you a quick summary. Psalms, the book of Psalms is one of my favorite books in the Bible. Uh, it is classified sometimes under the heading of writings in the threefold division of the Old Testament. And uh, that really doesn't do it justice because it's a particular genre that actually includes songs that would be sung corporately and individually by Israel. It's Hebrew poetry. It's artful. It's devotional. And really what it is is a window into the life of a covenant keeper. It is a window into the life of a believer in God regardless of the circumstances they're going through. Uh, our particular psalm falls right at the end of book four. So the whole, the whole book of psalms can be divided into five books, uh, as it was originally, and each one has some different themes. And the theme of book four is confidence and trust in God. Our particular psalm this morning is the first of four psalms of praise that conclude book four. So uh, if you just notice, if you flip the pages... Of the next few psalms, you'll notice they all, for the most part, begin and end with blessing the Lord or praising the Lord. And that's very typical for these psalms. Uh, we also know just from the superscript, just above verse 1, that this psalm was written by David. Uh, it's King David, the most famous king in Israel's history after Jesus. He's the one king that every king after him would be compared to, described as a man after God's own heart and a talented musician. Now, we don't know when David wrote this in his life. We don't know under what circumstances he wrote it. That's something that I always wonder myself when I'm reading a psalm of David because we actually know a lot about David's life. But one commentator says this. He says that because we don't know the circumstances, it's a universal song. It's suited for all ages, appropriate to all persons, and applicable to all conditions. This psalm, I think, is gospel-rich and does have familiar language. My guess is, as I read it, you're going to notice phrases that you hear Christians speak sometimes. Uh, perhaps maybe you've even considered some of these phrases cliche. Well, the reason is because they come from this great psalm, and they so helpfully communicate God's love for us. I think I could easily probably uh, divide this psalm up and spend an entire series working through it, but we're not going to do that this time. So before we dive in, let me read our text this morning. Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, 
nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it is gone. And its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. And his righteousness to children's children. To those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. It's a marvelous passage. I like to come up with some kind of main idea or summary of the passage, and some chapters or some sections of scripture are, are harder to come up with than others, and they require lots of dissecting, dissecting and exegetical gymnastics, but this is like a glorious building that you can just observe and admire. You see all the connecting points, the beautiful structure This passage is beautiful in its own right, and I think the summary of it is pretty clear. The main idea is that God is worthy of all praise everywhere because of his unfailing love and abundant mercy. I'll say that again. God is worthy of all praise everywhere because of his unfailing love and abundant mercy. You can tell as we read this that it is just an overflow of gratitude for God's redeeming mercy by David. If I were to break up this psalm into sections, I would break it up from verses 1 through 5 and title it Individual Praise to God. And then verses 6 through 18, we see an exploration of God's benefits that are mentioned by David in verse 5. And then in verses 19 through 22, David concludes with cosmic praise to God. And I got that wording from a great scholar named Alec Matier who has uh, passed on, unfortunately, but cosmic praise. And so you'll notice the psalm is bookended, beginning first with the individual worshiper and then ending with all of creation praising the Lord. There's so much to learn about God and the worshiper and the act of praising God in general. And so those are basically going to be my three points this morning. Not very creative, but first, we'll consider God in the passage. Second, we'll consider man. And third, we'll consider worship. So point one, God. Uh, Mainly in verses 6 through 14. Uh, David opens up the psalm, introducing, praising God with all of his being, his whole soul. And then he mentions a flurry of benefits of the Lord in verses 3 through 5. 
He begins by speaking of the ways he has experienced God's work in his own life. And here's what he lists. Forgives iniquity, heals diseases, redeems your life, crowns you with love, satisfies you with good, and renews your youth. Uh, Each one of these things we could spend time on and expound and think about the ways that we see God do this in our own lives and in the lives of people in Scripture. But I'll summarize them all by simply saying that David is primarily speaking of the way that God brings healing and forgiveness to our lives. He's speaking specifically of the removal of sin and guilt. Uh, David is one of the most fascinating characters in the Bible. You can read about his life in 2 Samuel. Uh, Like I said, we know so much about him. Uh, The narrative of his life is epic. He was a shepherd boy that was chosen among all his brothers to be king. He spent time as a musician in the king's court. Uh, Then the king tried to kill him while serving him as that musician. He slayed a giant at one point. He befriended the king's son who was trying to kill him. That complicated things. He becomes a king of all kings eventually. He's one of the few people that God speaks to directly. He commits horrible sins, adultery and murder. He loses a child in judgment. Another one of his sons conspires against him. He's been through a lot. This is what I'm getting at. Uh, He has had a full life. And because he lives his life as a military commander, there are very much times where the Lord has physically delivered him, saved his life. And he writes about that in other psalms. But I think that David here is mainly reflecting on the deliverance that God brings from within. The forgiveness of sins is what David is articulating here. And the reason I think that he's primarily speaking about that is because he mentions healing all your diseases. And something interesting is that we never read or hear of David experiencing a disease of any kind in his life. Not only that, but throughout the psalm, we'll read about redemption and forgiveness as the most important acts of God. Verses 6 through 14 explore those benefits that David introduces with in more detail by linking the actions of God with the character or identity of God. So specifically, David praises God for two things that you will find all over the Old Testament. He praises God because of his steadfast love and mercy. And if you didn't know, this is, this is covenant language. This is the type of language that was revealed to Moses when he requested God show him his glory. In Exodus 34, 6 and 7, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast love could also be translated as faithful love, loyal love, constant love or loving kindness, depending on the translation you're using. But this is the way that Israel learned who God was. And they did it right after being delivered physically out of slavery from Egypt, after passing through on dry ground over the Red Sea, and then journeying to Mount Sinai. And it's that steadfast love or faithful love that is mentioned throughout the psalm as well, because David is praising Yahweh, the God of the Exodus, for his powerful deeds. And you notice that. As he says, he made known his ways to Moses, 
and his acts to the people of Israel in verse 7. Now look down at verse 8, where the phrase is repeated, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Friends, let that just sink in for a moment. That the God who created all things, seen and unseen, is merciful and gracious. He is steadfast. His love is unwavering, unmoving. It never ends. And David gives examples of God's love and mercy. Almost as if someone were talking to him and responding to his statements. How do you know that God is this way? Look down at verse 10. He says, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. I think this is basically the key verse of this entire psalm. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. That's the very definition of mercy, that we are given what we don't deserve, unmerited favor. But notice as well as the universal truth underneath verse 10, that, there are not, that we are not treated as we deserve. What does that teach us about us? It teaches us that we are sinners. And the Bible is extremely clear about this. You can go all over to find these truths that all have sinned and rebelled against God, that we as His creatures have slandered His holy name, that we have made ourselves enemies of Him by pursuing our own desires instead of living according to His will. And Romans 6 says that the wages of sin is death. Elsewhere, he says that wrath is being stored up for the day of judgment. Friends, if he is a holy and a just God, then the good and right thing for him to do is to punish us according to our sin and our iniquities. That puts us in grave eternal danger. But the good news is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the message that God has made a way for us to be saved and not at expense of God's justice. He sent His own Son to die as a sacrifice for our sins. Jesus Christ was without sin, and He who knew no sin took upon our sin upon Himself and was punished on the cross. Three days later, He rose from the grave to prove that we too would be raised from the grave on the last day. If we turn from our sin and trust in Him, we would not perish but gain everlasting life. That's why Scripture says that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He did all of this out of love for us, even while we were sinners, Romans 5, 8 says. The good news is that we are called to herald this joyous proclamation to the world. So friend, if you're here visiting this morning and you don't consider yourself a Christian... Uh, First, I'm just so glad that you're here and that you would give up time to be with us. Uh, There's nowhere else we think that we would rather you be. Uh, But we want you to know what we think the most important message is for you to hear uh, is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Uh, that our relationship with Him has been fractured by our sin, and therefore we deserve hell. But God in His mercy made a way for us to be saved by sending His Son, Jesus. If you turn from your sin and make Him the Lord of your life, then He promises that you can be saved. That's the most important thing that you can walk away from today's service knowing. If you have more questions about what that might look like uh, in your own life to turn from your sin and live a life of repentance, 
uh, feel free to talk to me at the door or one of the, one of the members of the church here. We would love to talk with you about that. But friends, the point is, what David makes clear here is that we don't deserve his mercy. We deserve punishment. And we are given mercy instead. And David elaborates even more on how God is merciful to us by giving us three different pictures of his mercy in verses 11 through 13. So these are like illustrations uh, or word pictures for us to understand a little bit about what God is like, teaching us about God's love and forgiveness and compassion. So first look at verse 11. David says, As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. Which is an expression to say that God's love is greater than the distance between heaven and earth. In David's time, they spoke of heaven not just as the skies. Sometimes it was referred to as just the skies. But oftentimes it was referred to as the space beyond the skies. uh, The realm that could not be seen. The realm that was inhabited by God alone. The point here is that the distance, the gap between earth and heaven is an impossible gap to measure. We can't see heaven. Not with the strongest of telescopes can we reach it. It's in a whole other realm completely. It's off the charts of our measurement or observation. Uh, We may think we have an idea about how much God loves us, but how could we if we can't measure his love? Without being able to measure the distance between heaven and earth, David is teaching us that God's love could not be greater. It exceeds our imagination. Second word picture, verse 12, David says, As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Uh, From this we learn the length of his forgiveness. And the point here is that uh, the east and the west, (laughs) they could not be further apart, could they? They're always on complete opposite sides. East to west is describing the maximum amount, amount of space possible to exist between the two. The Bible says that Christ took our sins and nailed the cross so that we could be forgiven. By his blood, our transgressions have been washed away. Our sin has been removed, and he remembers them no more. Through Christ, God has separated the sin from the sinner. Not that we walk perfectly. We still live in a fallen world, so we'll continue to sin. But the Bible is speaking in judicial terms, in a courtroom uh, type of setting, to describe when God looks at us on Judgment Day, He sees not our sin, but Christ's righteousness, because we are wearing Christ's righteous robes in exchange. The East and the West never touch. And neither will there be any sin held against you on the day of judgment if you turn from your sins and trust in Christ. So friend, if you're here and you struggle with guilt, wondering how God could save a sinner like yourself, first know that you are not alone. You are with every other human on the planet. Second, remember that while we were once enslaved by sin, Christ sets us free. And once sin has been pardoned, It can never return to make a claim on your soul. You can't be charged for your sin any more than the east can become the west and the west can become the east. And notice 
in verse 3, what David says. He says, all your iniquity, not just your iniquity before you became a Christian, before your conversion, all your iniquity, past, present, and future. God does not partially forgive or partially pardon, nor would he give up the life of his own son if that were the case. His forgiveness is to the fullest extent, and our guilt is forever separated from us as far as is possible. Now, the third image in verse 13 is a relational comparison. He says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. And this one is maybe harder for many to understand because there's no such thing as a perfect earthly father. And I think in our culture especially, there are more divided households than ever before. I don't know if that's true ever before, but this seems like a prevalent truth today. Our culture does not value the family like it once did. But a good father will always be near. A good father will always do his best to protect and to serve his family, his children, to be gracious. And in this verse, we learn about God's relational presence and nearness in our lives. He has the authority of the father, but the closeness of an immediate family member. He is not far off. He is not a harsh or distant God. His compassion is given as a parent to their beloved child. God does not deal with us as enemies or as strangers, but as family, as his own children. All who trust in Christ are adopted into the family of God. And so in verses 11 through 13, we have these three pictures of his love, forgiveness, and compassion. The height of his love, it could not be greater. The length of his forgiveness, it could not be further. And the duration of his compassion could not be more comforting. All of this because he knows us. Look at verse 14. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. How weak and needy we are. All of this explains verse 10, the forgiveness of God. All of this backs up the claim that God is steadfast and merciful. And one commentator summarized this section well by saying, a mercy not merited, a love not measured, and a forgiveness complete, and a father who knows our form, who will not forsake us. Reasons indeed to bless the Lord. This is David's meditation. From beginning to end, it is God's great power and love that demands our praise. In verse 5, David says that the Lord satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. I don't know if you've heard that language before. It shows up a few times in the Bible. And, you know, when I uh, was uh, studying to preach, I heard a lot of guys uh, make frequent illustrations from the same sources. And so I told myself, I wouldn't be the kind of cliche preacher that constantly just quotes Tolkien and Lewis, Lord of the Rings, or Narnia. But it's hard to avoid for this particular verse. 
If you're familiar with Lord of the Rings, there are a few desperate points in uh, the books or the movies where the characters are trapped and they have no way out. And eagles come to their rescue and literally carry them off on eagles' wings. Uh, And there's a famous line, of course, the eagles are coming. Well, where does this language come from in the Bible? Uh, Those authors, by the way, are are Christian authors. So it's, it's no surprise that we find lots of Christian themes in their writing. And they are good, I must say. So where does this language of eagles' wings come from? Believe it or not, just like most of the psalm, David is referring back to the deliverance at the Exodus. Exodus 19, verse 4, says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. That was Israel's first deliverance and making of a people, the beginning of the Mosaic Covenant, the covenant that would eventually be broken and the people sent in exile. When then the prophets would come and speak of a newer and better covenant, a new exodus, a greater deliverance than the original exodus. And in Isaiah 40, verses 30 and 31, the prophet Isaiah says this, Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. This is... The word picture Israel used in demonstrating God's complete and whole deliverance of his people. God's saving work in their lives and the hope of future salvation through the suffering servant. The prophecy that Jesus himself fulfilled. All of this is completely the work of God. So where does that leave us? Point two. What does this chapter teaches about man. The main focus is in verses 15 through 18, where man is not only the object of God's steadfast love and mercy, but the proof of it. And notice that three times in the chapter, God's compassion is shown towards those who fear him. Verses 11, verse 13, and verse 17. What does it mean, those who fear him? Well, those who fear the Lord are those who walk according to his will, and walk according to his will, specifically because you fear him more than you fear anything else. You fear his judgment more than man's judgment or any other consequence you might face for fearing the Lord. Second, it means living in accordance with his supreme authority in your life. Third, fearing the Lord. It means a sincere desire to do his will, to do his commands. And notice that those who fear him in verse 13 are likened to his children, as well as in verse 17. So those who fear the Lord are not just constantly terrified of a sovereign God who has complete power over the universe and lifts you up on weagle's wings, but he relates to us with the compassion of a father. And those who fear him are like children. On On this earth, what we learn about man in this passage, our existence is feeble and finite. Verses 16, 15 and 16. The grass and flowers fade. Uh, you know, we've experienced a lot of rain lately, uh, more than I can ever remember growing up in Southern California, actually. This is, this is something else. But uh, after each rain, the weeds just sprout up overnight, it seems. 
uh, suddenly I have this lush backyard that used to just be dirt. Uh, we have the same thing here in the church. Don't go back there, though. <laughs> but as soon as the heat comes, that grass is going to wither and fade. It's just going to die quickly. It won't last very long at all. And this is how humanity is talked about in the Bible. Sprouts up quickly, withers away quickly. Now, what does every parent say when their child moves out of the house? They grow up so fast, don't they? The time went so quickly. Well, actually, it's the same amount of time uh, that the parents went through together. It's not like uh, there were different timetables. And 20 years into the future feels a lot further away than 20 years in the past. But it's, it's, it's the exact same amount of time. The point is, time goes quickly. Life is short, a vapor. Something as gentle as wind can carry life away. This is our existence, a breath, here one day and gone the next. And we don't even know how long it's going to be. Psalm 90, which happens to be the first psalm in book four. So here we have the first psalm and then the first and the last four. Psalm 90, verses two through six. There's a lot of parallels in Psalm 90 and this psalm. But listen to verses two through six in verse 10. The psalmist says, You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Out of dust he made us, and out of dust we shall return. Uh, This is creation language. David is praising God as the creator who formed Adam out of the dust of the earth. David's son Solomon would speak about this very thing when death comes. Man takes nothing with him, but returns to the ground. This psalm indicates that God is our maker. He knows us exactly from the moment of our conception to the very last breath we breathe. And it's by his creative power, not only that we were created, but that we continue to exist. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Friends, do you realize that every breath that you draw and exhale is a gift from the Lord? And gifts, gifts are meant to be stewarded well. So how have you been stewarding the breath in your lungs, in your life? Just think about a normal day in your life for a moment. Think about all the things that you say to yourself, privately, to others. What percentage of your speaking is used for praising God or for building up and encouraging others? Surely we will never be in danger of singing too many of God's praises or evangelizing too much. So what are ways that you can change your speech to magnify God in your daily life? Our life is a breath. And what do our lives show us? 
What do we fill our existence with? Well, before the Lord's saving mercy, it is sin. Our transgressions laid out before His eyes. Like we talked about earlier, verse 10 implies we don't deserve His mercy and love. And then notice in verse 9, it's not that the Lord never disciplines or never corrects us. Verse 9, He says, He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. So while He is... While his steadfast love and mercy go on forever, his judgment, his ultimate judgment on us does not. His discipline on us is light. These earthly bodies cannot handle the wrath of God that we deserve. But the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He has not dealt with us after our sins. Commentator writes this. He has not dealt with us after our sins. Our sins have been heavy as the sand of the sea. His corrections have been so light that weak as we are, they have not crushed, but only humbled us. Our sins have been long, continued, and persistent. His strokes have been but occasional and of short duration. Our sins have been daily and very provoking, His patience has been every way amazing, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. We have requited evil for good, and he has returned good for evil. David knew this when writing this psalm. We know it now even more, because David believed in the deliverer that God would send, one from his own line. But we know that this prophecy was fulfilled in Jesus We look at Jesus' death on the cross and see the ultimate expression of God's love toward us so that we could be forgiven and reckoned righteous. Our existence on this earth is short and pathetic, perhaps at times, but it was given to us in order to praise God's name. This entire psalm is an example of that. There could be no other response to the experience of God's mercy and His sovereignty in our lives than absolute praise with all of our being. This entire psalm is an example of that. The heart change that is experienced by someone who receives the mercy of Christ propels us to keep God's commandments, to live and honor Him with our lives. Verse 17 reminds us that for those who fear God and keep His commandments, His steadfast love is from everlasting to everlasting. It never ends in both directions and into the future. And if we are diligent to do His commands, His love will be shown to future generations. That's what He means when He says, and, to, and His righteousness to children's children in verse 17. Christians who do the will of God magnify His name and share the good news with others. Uh, The Lord will use the proclamation and heralding of the good news to create more Christians throughout the generations. Uh, This is why we as Christians desire to raise our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Uh, This is why we want to be faithful in our evangelism and our discipling of each other. So friends, our lives may be short passing, a breath, we should be sure not to waste it. 
that leads me to the third thing I want to think about in this chapter, worship. Uh, Clearly, this is focusing on verses 1 through 5 and verses 20 through 22, the bookends of the psalm. The psalm begins and ends with worship because that is the only right response when understanding and experiencing the character of the Almighty. There's a common phrase in Christian circles where people say theology leads to doxology, meaning the study of God, the knowledge of God, understanding who He is, ultimately drives us into worship because as we study His character, we see His his goodness and His mercy. Uh, We see His mercy poured out on us, and so we can't help but reflect and praise Him for it. So when you read passages like this one, when you remind yourself of the truths of the gospel, does your heart move to worship God? When you remind yourself of all the things that God has done for you in your own life, does your heart well up in humility and love for God? Friends, it should. If it doesn't, why not? Spend some time thinking about that this afternoon. David cannot help but worship. First with all of his being in verses 1 through 5. And then at the end of the psalm, he's naming everything else that he knows exists. He's naming angels, heavenly hosts, servants of Yahweh. Not just his servants, but even his works. In other words, all of creation has a purpose. And that purpose is to glorify God who created it. Psalm 19, verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above His handiwork. Creation speaks to His praise. Did you know that all things in life have a purpose? It's the great question, what is the meaning of life? Christians have answered it in various ways, but I think the most concise and best summary is from the Westminster Catechism. It's the first question and the answer is man's chief end, chief and highest end is to glorify God and fully enjoy Him forever. So friends, do you live your life in a way that reflects this purpose that God intended for His creation? Another commentator said this, In all acts of worship, let us summon our whole nature to the work. Let our intellects know God. Let our wills choose Him that our hearts go out after Him, our confidence lean on Him, our love delight in Him, our tongues praise Him, and our hands clap for joy of Him. Let us worship Him neither ignorantly, nor superstitiously, nor hypocritically, nor irreverently. There is something that threatens us or causes us to fail at living up to the praise of God in our lives. And that threat that I think Satan uses frequently is our own forgetful hearts. One author said that it's one of the saddest proofs of our fallen nature, that we have a propensity to forget God's benefits, especially His greatest gift, Jesus Christ. So friends, make it your aim to remind yourself regularly of the benefits of God as David does here in Psalm 103. And upon review, let your heart transcend into worship and praise to God. No, we can never know God fully. 
but we can know him truly as he has revealed himself in his word. There's different ways that I have done this in my own life, and I would happily recommend them to you. Uh, One way that I have uh, given myself an aid to remember uh, what God has done in my own life is to make a prayer journal, to simply record the things that I pray for uh, regularly. And what I found is that when I go back to review it, uh, whether or not I realized it, the Lord had actually answered a number of those prayers. And what an encouragement that is, to then have record of the ways that God has has uh, given you grace in your life. Another way is to ask other members about God's work in their life, to have them share what's been uh, going on in their life, what they're learning about the Lord through their own life circumstances, or perhaps even if they know you well, to ask them to share about how they see God moving in your own life. I found that wonderfully encouraging. Another way is to read Christian biographies. As we listen to saints of old, Uh, experience, live out, and retell God's grace in their own life. Uh, That can be wonderfully edifying as they articulate the gospel in new ways, as they face different or uh, similar trials to us. Lastly, remember the death and resurrection of Christ when we observe the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Uh, Of course, uh, Christians meet weekly to celebrate the resurrection of Christ. The first day of the week is the Lord's Day. Uh, But this church celebrates the ordinance of the Lord's Supper on the first Sunday of every month. Uh, So make a special uh, note to yourself or a special awareness to prepare your heart for that time, uh, to observe and experience the visual picture that Jesus himself gave us to remember his blood shed for us and his body broken for us. One of my favorite sayings is by Luther. And he says, when you get up in the morning and you wash your face, remember your baptism. With our whole being, our purpose is to worship God with our lives, to live in light of the great covenant keeper, the Lord himself, who has never failed to deliver his steadfast love and mercy to us. Praise be to God. I've already mentioned that our service theme this morning is our forgiving God. And I wondered how well that theme would fit uh, a change of sermon text. Uh, But I was thankful to the Lord that I didn't need to. As forgiveness is very much the theme of this chapter as well. Bless the Lord all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Friends, remember this praise. Remember the call of all creation to praise the Lord, and then join that song. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, great is your mercy toward us, lowly sinners, undeserving sinners. So great is your love, it is higher than the heavens are to the earth. You have revealed yourself as the God who sets prisoners free, as seen in the Exodus. You established a relationship with your people as a covenant keeper, but your people could not keep that covenant. And so then you promised to make a better covenant in which you would write the law on our own hearts. You sent your son to be the only human who could obey you perfectly in order to win righteousness on our behalf. We praise you this morning with all of creation and the angels in heaven because you are a merciful God. Help us to live in light of your great name. We pray in Jesus' name.
Amen.